The book we're studying this summer is the book of Proverbs, which is written, it's it's a, a book in the Old Testament that was written to help form and instruct and train children. So it's a valuable book for for kids and for people that are currently raising children or for any person that's looking to gain wisdom. That's the goal of the book is wisdom. And we found over and over that the only way that you can actually get wisdom, the ability to live a skillful and godly life in, in this world is to fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so you can't have a wise and compelling life if you are not worshiping God. The first nine chapters are a long introduction to this book, and it's taken us three weeks to get through this long introduction. Um, the, Solomon is having a long conversation with his son, and he's trying to instruct his son to live a wise and godly life. Not a foolish and self-centered life, but a wise and godly life. Last week, Josh Hayes preached an incredible message on Proverbs 9, which was that last uh, incredible text before we launch into the rest of the book. Two, two women in, in this passage in Proverbs chapter 9. There's Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. Both have spread a table. Both have sent out invitations. And the question left hanging at the end of this long introduction is, what feast will you attend? Will you just, you know, kind of f- uh, fall in line in Lady Folly's feast and, and uh, just kind of slip in there? If, if that's the case, you probably won't care to read the rest of the book. You just crank up the music, drown out the voice of God, and do whatever you want to. But if you desire a wise and godly life and you want to eat and and have life and enjoy a wise life, then you will actually turn the page from Proverbs chapter nine into 20 chapters of rich advice, wisdom for living a godly life. I counted it up this week, over 600 little little maxims, little, little proverbs to help us live a compelling life. Now, this is what most of us think about when we think of the book of Proverbs, just all this, uh, the the little one-sentence, one-liners, memorable quotes. We're gonna spend four weeks working through this section. How should we cover this section? We are used to, in this church, going line by line, verse by verse through the Bible. And, And generally, that is the best way to approach a text of scripture. You just, there's a logical flow of thought. So you just take it from the beginning and you work through what does the text say. That's not really how Proverbs is structured. And we need to understand the logic of the book in order to to preach um, through this section. If we were to go through that, we would be all over the place. We'd be confused, not wise, leaving the room. There's lots of uh, advice all over the place. Here's how you can think of this section. You can think of Solomon as stuffing 600 Easter eggs of wisdom and he's hidden them in his yard. And, and now he has sent his son out on this hunt where his son will compile wisdom. It'll take a long time. It'll take a lifetime, actually, to, to work through all of this wisdom and to develop it. And so that's the best way. I think we're, what we're going to do over the next four weeks is, is Josh and I, as we look through this text, we're going to compile four different piles according to themes. We're going to look at what does the proverb say about family? What does the proverb say about money? What do the proverbs say about words. Lots of advice there. What does the proverb say about our work? Family, money, words, and work. How How do wise people navigate these very practical issues? These aren't the only themes in the book by far, but they are some of the most prominent themes in the book. Before we jump in, we're going to talk about family this morning. Before we jump in, let me just tell you how much fun I had preparing this message. I had a legal pad, page after page after page of notes on the family. 
And as I went through it and just line by line and just kind of compiled this giant pile, it it was eye-opening to me. I had a lot of fun. And and I say that to admonish you to do the same. That's really how you're gonna get the most out of this book. You, You won't really gain wisdom by listening to a lecture. You'll gain wisdom when you learn to seek it out and hunger for it, and and dive through the pages of the Proverbs. So I want to admonish you to seek out wisdom this week and really through the rest of your life. This morning, we are going to look at family. Proverbs have a lot to say about the relationships that take place in the home. And right off the bat, we should just, just say, family, is there anything better than family? Is there anything worse than family? It is a wonderful relationship and a very difficult relationship because our families bring out the best in us and our families bring out the worst in us. And if you live in a home with other people, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. The family is great because God designed it. If you remember back in Genesis chapter two, God designed the husband and wife relationship and and, and he created this whole thing we call family. It's important to remember because you... You didn't get married. I, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, but I think this is a, a safe limb to go out on. You didn't get married because you, you read a book about the benefits of marriage or listened to a podcast on some of the tax breaks. You're like, wow, that's pretty practical. I think I'll get married. That's not why you got married. You got married because you saw a girl and you thought she was pretty and you started doing a lot of stupid things to impress her. What's happening to me? (laughs) That's how you started a family. That is God's desire inside of you from Genesis chapter two that he put in you. God gave us a desire to get married, to have kids, because it's God's design. The home can be a very wonderful place, a joyful place, a comfortable place. But let's be honest, the home is not always comfortable or joyful, is it? There are two major forces working against God's great design, the family. The first is internal. Every one of us is deeply broken by sin, and that makes family life really hard. Maybe you didn't even realize how sinful and broken you were until you moved in with your spouse. Or even at a door, you just realize when you live so closely to somebody else, you realize I am broken. That brokenness is on full display when you put four or five people together in a 1,500 square foot home with one toilet. You will see the sin nature welling up inside of you. The second force that's working against our families is external. Over the past 50 or 60 years, the family unit in our country has been under constant pressure, constant attack, and it has slowly eroded our confidence. Think about how the mainstream world around us has glamorized divorce, legalized abortion, pushed the sexual revolution. Every TV show you watch, every song you listen to encourages you to live for yourself. Don't do what's best for the community. Don't do what's best for the family. Don't dare serve anyone else. Serve yourself. All of these forces combined for, sev- for half a century have eroded our confidence in the family. In fact, there's so much confusion and pain surrounding the traditional family that many people are just giving it up. God's great design. People are just saying, no, I'm not gonna go there. In fact, I think this is one of the biggest issues that the church will face as we advance into the 21st century. A lot of people are just done with family. I think the church needs to help people think about the family. So how can we make sense of the family? What does the Proverbs teach us about the family? Is it possible to build wise and godly homes in a broken world with sin in our hearts? 
Yes, it is. And the Proverbs will show us a compelling picture, a remarkable picture of the home. I want to read a verse, Proverbs 24, 3 and 4. And you can think of this as the kind of the proverb where all the rest of it will hang. This will be our theme verse for the morning. And then we will build the rest of our outline around this verse. By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So when the Proverbs thinks of a godly and wise home, they think of a home that's built on the foundation of God's wisdom. It's surrounded by, by the Lord himself and you go to every single room and it's filled with pleasant and precious riches. That's how the Proverbs would envision a godly home. This would actually be a wonderful verse for you to pray through as you walk through your physical home. Lord, may these rooms be filled with your presence, with precious riches for, for, for my spouse to discover, for, for me to discover, for my children to discover. We want God to be glorified in every relationship, in every corner of our home. If we're not consciously building our homes on God's wisdom, this is what will happen. We'll turn our eyes off the Lord and we will build it according to the wisdom of our world. We can get little blocks from all different places, from our friends and from, from the university and from the, the magazines and from the shows and we can construct a little house and dwell in it. That's not wise. We, we can build a house that feels right and feels good. That's not a wise way to do it. Even Jesus said the wise man builds his house upon what? The rock. Build your house upon the rock. Let me give you an example of how foolish it would be to build a home with secular wisdom and, and not godly wisdom, but worldly wisdom. Do, do any of you remember? Of course you remember. When it snowed 20 inches last December, yes? How many of you built some sort of an igloo or carved out some sort of a shelter? Anybody do that? Yes, we did that at our home, carved out a big shelter. It was wonderful. Here's the crazy thing about building an igloo, especially when the snow gets that big. You can carve out a nice little home. We could fit all of our family inside of it. And you get in there and you're like, this is kind of warm. This is kind of nice. You could drink a, a cup of hot chocolate in your little igloo. We built one, but here, here's the key truth. We didn't move in. I didn't like go, hey, this is kind of nice, kids. What do y'all think? Let's, let's bring the couch in. Y'all can stay right here. We, we didn't move in and that ended up being a good move. You know why? It melted. <laughs> There's no igloo in my yard anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. Here's my point. You can build a fancy home with all of the wisdom that this world has to offer, it can look nice, it can look glamorous, it could even be comfortable, and it could work for a little bit. You don't have to be a Christian to get married and have kids. It, it might work out for a little bit, but here's the truth. It will melt. The sun will shine and dissolve all of your work. The Proverbs and Jesus admonish us to build our homes on the foundation of God's wisdom so that it will last. So that when the storms of life come, it will have the strength to withhold the storms of life. The Proverbs will give us a brilliant picture of how a godly family navigates the complexities of the home. We're gonna look at some of the main relationships this morning. This will be our outline. You can just imagine going from room to room. We'll be around the dinner table. We'll go to the kids' room, the, the parents' room. We're, we're gonna just look through the house and explore some of the main relationships. What does the Proverbs say about the, uh, the husbands and wives? What about parents and children? What about grandparents? I wanna say right up front that the picture presented in the Proverbs is incredible. It is the ideal family. 
We need to remember that's how this genre works. It's glossy, it's perfect. It's the ideal family. And because of that, I imagine most of our hearts, since God created us to live in this kind of an environment, we will long for that and we will want it. We'll hear the truth here and just cry out, I, I want that. But probably what will happen is it will also disappoint us. As we look at this ideal family, we're gonna realize that we don't live up. And, and we, we, we just can't cut it. Um, these descriptions might be painful for you to work through. If they are, don't check out on me. I wanna tell you right up front so that you just don't check out and go, no, he doesn't understand. I do understand. Nothing reveals our need for a savior like the family. We will come back to the gospel. We will close with the gospel. If this is a hard uh, teaching for you, stick with me. It's coming around. Let's start. Let's look at husbands and wives. Actually, can I pray first? I wanna pray right now, if you don't mind, before we jump in. Heavenly Father, be with us now as we jump in and look at different relationships, Father. I know this might be difficult and painful. As we look at this, uh, it, it will also be beautiful and a good thing because you created this, God. And so I pray that our hearts will be open to hear your inspired word this morning through the Proverbs. I pray that your spirit would speak to us and transform us, God. Let us be open to hearing your word this morning, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So we're gonna look at the, fam- uh, the husbands and wives. We'll go ahead and establish this right off the bat that Proverbs exalt the marriage relationship. Proverbs 18, 22, maybe some of you know this verse. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. You found a spouse, you found a good thing. Remember Solomon's writing this to his son, so he speaks in terms of finding a wife. If you find a spouse, if you find a wife, ladies, if you find a husband, you found a good thing. It's favor from the Lord. Again, this is a powerful word to our current society. As I've already mentioned, people are getting married later than they ever have. The average age of a first marriage is actually pushing 30. It's towards the end of the 20s now. There are a lot of forces or factors of why that is happening. But I think primarily, if I could suggest one reason, there's a lot of emerging adults coming into adulthood, they, they've never seen a good marriage. Many of them have never seen a, a good marriage. Why would you rush to get married when nobody around you is getting married and the only marriages you've ever seen end in heartbreak? If you grew up in an igloo that melted, you're probably not in a hurry to move back into another igloo, are you? That's how a lot of people feel about marriage and there's lots of other alternatives to, to, to living these days. As you read through the Bible though, you will find that marriage is a good thing and especially when you get to the Proverbs, marriage is a very good thing. You'll find several examples of why it's good, but let me limit it to three examples of why marriage is a good thing. Again, I'm not giving a, a whole biblical picture. I'm giving what the Proverbs say about marriage. First, marriage is a good thing because husbands and wives are romantic partners. They are deeply in love. There is romance in a marriage relationship. It's a good thing. God created it. In Proverbs chapter five, Solomon is warning his son against the temptations of an adulterous woman. She will come at you and she will tempt you. And this is what he says. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your wife. It's one of the best ways to stay out of marital trouble. Stay intoxicated with your wife. Listen to verse 18. This is what he says of the adulterous woman, or, or to his son. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, dot, dot, dot. I put that there because the next few verses will go on to tell you how to enjoy your wife, but it's family worship service, so I'm gonna let you read those on your own later on. <laughs> 
The point is clear. A healthy marriage involves romantic love. You have to remember how profound this was. This is written in a society where people married for practicality. Marriages were often arranged. It was a form of security. Solomon reminds us that marriage is a good thing because it's passionate. It's a picture of God's great love for us, the marriage relationship, of God's covenantal love for us. Don't you think then it would be passionate? It would be filled with joyful love. If you're married, let me ask you a simple question. Are you intoxicated with your spouse? Are you in love? Now, I realize, and this is difficult because every marriage in this room is at a different level. Sometimes, some of the marriages may have gone cold or maybe you've been drifting the past few weeks or months or decades. And maybe your marriage has gone cold. And if that's the case, this could be a hard message to hear. But the Bible is clear that the trajectory of our marriage should be towards God and towards one another. We should be growing in our love for one another. So let me just ask, what is one simple step you could take this week? If, if your marriage has gone cold, what is one simple step? Maybe a good night kiss. Or maybe waking up five minutes early and brewing the coffee. Think about that. Either way, the Proverbs encourage romantic love. Second, marriage is good because husbands and wives are friends. Husbands and wives are friends. In Proverbs 2, Solomon again is warning his son about the allure of the adulterous woman and this is what he says about her in verse 17, Proverbs chapter 2. This woman has forsaken the companion of her youth. She's forgotten the covenant of her God. That word companion throughout the rest of the Proverbs will speak of a close and intimate friend. According to the Proverbs then, the, the adulterous woman has forsaken that companionship of her spouse. Marriage then is designed to be uh, friends. Husbands and wives are friends. They should be your closest friend. Yes, you should burn in love with one another, but you should just enjoy being together. Well, we don't enjoy the same kind of things. You can learn. You can learn to enjoy the same kind of stuff that your spouse does. For instance, since I've been married to Laura, I have grown in my love for puzzles. If you know me, that's a big deal, right? We have a puzzle going right now. I enjoy puzzles. Since Laura has been married to me, she can tell you the starting offensive line for the Carolina Panthers. That's my girl. It's good to spend time with one another. And if you just say, ah, we share different interests, I dare you just to try. Just try this week. Let, let me do what you like to do because that's what friends do. But, but even deeper than that, companions, friends, they, they dream about life together. They build a life together. They share everything. And as you read through this, you're gonna see a husband and wife sharing the load of discipline. They're dreaming for their children. They have plans. They have ideas. That's what marriage is about. That's why it's such a good thing. Marriage partners are friends. Finally, marriage is good because husbands and wives encourage one another. They build each other up. What a wonderful thing to be married to somebody that has your back, that is always pointing out your strengths. What a blessing. Proverbs 12, 4 an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. She who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. What a, what a powerful picture. I want you to think about that. An excellent wife is like a crown on her husband's head. She makes her husband sit up a little straighter. Just stand up with a little bit more confidence. Excellent husband just brings out the best and is always affirming, always encouraging his wife. Now compare this with the nagging or quarrelsome wife. If you've ever casually read through the Proverbs, you will notice that this 
person jumps off the page. In fact, if you have your bulletins on the front, there's the high desert of the quarrelsome wife. You don't wanna be found there. Look at this, Proverbs 21.9. It's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in the house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Proverbs 19.13. A wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Proverbs 21.19. It's better to live in the desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Yikes. Remember, Solomon's writing this to his son, so he's talking about the wife. I, I know many nagging men, quarrelsome men. If you're quarrelsome in your marriage relationship, it's not good. Your spouse would have a better chance thriving in the desert. Do you hear that? They would have a better chance of thriving in a barren wasteland than in a home with you, with your constant critique, constant nagging, constant backbiting. The goal in marriage is not to tear one another down, but so many marriages just drift towards this constant attack because we see each other at our worst. It's a powerful tool to know what the worst is about someone else, and you can wield that in an ungodly way. The Proverbs would warn you against that. You can't encourage your spouse if you're always picking and critiquing. The goal of marriage is to see your spouse standing before the, the glory of God, the throne, in, in a glorified state. That's who you're married to. Someone that is just bursting with future glory and your goal is to be on that journey of their transformation. And it's a wonderful journey. That's what husbands and wives get to do. We build them up. Now, does this mean that you can never critique? No. In fact, when criticism is turned off, love has disappeared from the relationship. Look at these challenges in Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We must speak the truth in love to our husbands, to our wives, as we grow in godliness. So the Proverbs give us a picture of marriage that is exceedingly great. Husbands and wives, they, they burn in passion for one another. They are friends. They share life together. They've built their life on a common purpose. They're growing in, in, in the way that they encourage each other. They're experts in each other's strengths. It's a wonderful picture that the Proverbs get us. But again, if you're not living up to this, I want to encourage you. The Proverbs have set the bar impossibly high. Don't check out on me yet. I'm coming back. For the moment, let's move on to the next room. Let's move down the hallway. Is there anything more difficult than living in a home with another broken sinner? Yes, it's living in a home with lots of broken little sinners. <laughs> Marriage is tough, but then fill the home with, with sinful people. No lie, I was up early this morning going over my notes and on cue when I got to that, it, it's, uh, when I got to this line, it's trying to live in a home with lots of little sinners. I heard the footsteps and I'm like, no, 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 this is an hour early. You're not supposed to wake up right now, barging to the door, opening up the door and the one, the one kid we don't want to wake up wakes up. I'm like, oh, I get to apply this right now, this morning. Let's look at the relationship between parents and children. Proverbs are filled with parenting advice. You got kids in your home, just scour the Proverbs over and over and glean the advice Proverbs would have for you. The parents' primary job, according to the Proverbs, is to teach their children wisdom. And we know what wisdom is, the fear of the Lord. And so if you personally, parent, are not walking with God, not worshiping God, not fearing God, you will not be able to parent your child effectively. You can raise a successful, competent kid that can make a lot of money and make it in our secular culture. But if you've not taught your kid how to fear the Lord, you've taught them how to build a really nice, fancy igloo. 
that will melt on them. If you love your children, teach them how to fear the Lord. Give them true wisdom so that they can make it in this hard world. Now the Proverbs will give us three gifts that we can give our children as parents. I love Christmas as a kid. I love it more as a parent because I love giving my children gifts. It's a wonderful thing. Here's three gifts that you can give your children according to the Proverbs. First gift that you can give your children is a refuge. What a wonderful gift to give to your children. Don't you want your kid to be safe? Don't you want your kid to be healthy and protected? And as a weak and vulnerable parent, you often think, I, I can't do it. And so a lot of us, we, 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 we resort to other things. This is how the Proverbs teach us that we can give our children refuge. Look at Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Pause right there, because that is a crazy paradoxical statement. In the fear of the Lord, you have strong confidence. How do you gain confidence? By falling on your face in fear of God. That's how you develop confidence. Keep going though. And his children will have a refuge. When a parent has the fear of the Lord, their kids are safe. Their kids are protected. That's how you can provide a refuge for your children. There's lots of ways that you can try to keep your kids safe. There's an obsession with that in our society because our, our world is not safe. And so there's things that you can do. You can get premium health care insurance. You can cover them with the finest oils. You can get a security system. You can get a safe car and an 18-point buckle in that car so that you can try to keep your kids safe. But if you want your kid to be genuinely safe, teach them how to worship Jesus. Teach your children how to worship Jesus. This is, in my opinion, the primary reason we do family worship services. Our children need to see tall people, adults, raising their hands in worship of Jesus. This will give our kids refuge. You're not sending your kids out into a world with an unstable economy, with criminals, with bad guys out there that mean them harm. You are sending your kids into a world with a real spiritual enemy that seeks to disarm them and to destroy them. Give them a refuge. Teach them how to fear the Lord. That's a gift that we can give our children. Second, we can give our children a feast. We can give our children a feast. We want our children, yes, to believe in Jesus, but we also want our kids to enjoy Jesus. Think of Psalm 46 this refuge that we have, that God is a, a, a present help in times of trouble. But then the second stanza, he moves in and there's a river which makes glad the city of God. Inside this refuge is a party. You can dine with Lady Wisdom every night. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You're thinking, oh man, I don't have enough money to provide for my kids a feast every night. Yes, you do. According to the Proverbs, look at this. In the house of the righteous, there is much treasure few verses later, verse 17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. What a strong word for Christian families. You don't need the latest technology to engage your kids, to amaze your kids. That would be the easiest way to do it. If you want to inspire your kids and get them to enjoy life, spread a feast. All you need is a table, a Bible, and a heart 
that loves Jesus, maybe a few herbs, some rosemary, some whatever, some thyme you throw around the table and feast on Jesus. You can start this at lunch. Teach your kids how to feast on Jesus. For whatever reason, this makes me think of the March family and Little Women. We recently read that in our home. The, the, the March family didn't have a ton of money, but they had the best block or the best home on the block. Every room was filled with riches. Every meal was a feast. Are you teaching your kids how to enjoy Jesus? The third gift that we can give our kids is, wait for it, discipline. All the kids pop their heads at, what? That's not a gift? Yes, actually, it is a gift. We live in a world that shuns discipline. We come out of the womb shunning discipline. We don't like it. And our society in large has shunned wisdom, uh, discipline. <clears throat> the secular world that we are living in actually despises discipline. The wisdom of the, of the world would go like this. Children come out pure and untainted. They, they have all of the good stored up inside of them like a little seed. You just gotta plant it, a little seed. You gotta plant it and give them the right environment. Don't you dare discipline. Don't you dare tweak what might come out of them and just let them thrive. You encourage, you pull out the best inside of them. That sounds nice, but it doesn't line up with the Bible and it doesn't line up with reality. I have too many kids living in my house to believe such a view. The Proverbs have a different view of children. Proverbs 22, 15 says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. We come, up, we come out wrapped up in folly. Psalm 51, David says that I was brought forth in iniquity. You know what that word means? Crooked, bent. We were supposed to glorify God in everything that we do. We're born with iniquity in our hearts, which means that every desire ultimately curves back in on itself. I'm out for me. That's how our children enter our families. The job of a parent is to help straighten the bend. Now, obviously, God is the only one that can straighten the bend. You can teach wisdom. Solomon has this wonderful conversation with his son. At the end of the day, the kid has to decide. God's the only one that can shape and tweak, which is why we pray for our children day after day after day. Lord, change his heart. Come inside of my child's life. And yet, God in his sovereign wisdom has given us the responsibility to train and to coach and to shape our children through kind and loving discipline. Now, there are a lot of tools for disciplining our kids, but the primary tool in the Bible is the rod. All right, Proverbs 13, 24. It's all throughout the Proverbs. Here's one of the most provocative Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Let me just say, as I have scoured the Proverbs over the past few months, this is the point that has stuck out to me. If you love your child, you will be diligent. You won't just snap at him to get him to be quiet. You will be diligent in disciplining, instructing, and in shaping, and in training your child. A loving parent then will pick up the rod. What does that mean? Is this a mandate to spank? This is hard for a lot of young people and it's only getting harder because our world detests spanking. In fact, several European countries have outlawed it completely. If you spank your kid, your kid gets taken away from you. And I would not be surprised to see that happen in our own country and maybe some of the kids in this room in your lifetime. So Christians, we need to think clearly about this. What does it mean? What, what, what is the rod? What, how, how should we wield the rod? Here are a few thoughts. In the Bible, the rod is a figurative symbol of authority. 
a figurative symbol of authority. God has given parents a tremendous amount of authority in our children's lives. Think about that. If you're a parent, you have authority. Even if you don't like authority, even if you shy away from it, that's what God's given to you. You have authority. Take it seriously. For the record, I believe that the rod does include spanking. You'd have a hard time to look through the Bible and find that, that it's outlawed or in through church history. But I don't think it needs to include spanking every time. It's not the only tool. It is a great tool, but it's not the only tool. We need to consider the personality of our kids, the age of our kids, the circumstance of our kids. But here's the bottom line. God has put parents in charge and he's given them authority. He's given them the rod and a loving parent will use it well. But now we're in murky waters. The Proverbs have taken us to a difficult place because we've all seen this abused, have we not? Maybe it was abused on you. Maybe you have that tendency to, do, to abuse your own kids. I wanna be as clear as I can be here. When the rod is held in the hands of an angry, vindictive parent, it's not discipline, it's child abuse. When the rod is held in the hands of a vindictive, angry parent, it's not discipline, it's child abuse. If you bank out of anger, out of frustration, or to control, or just to get your kid to shut up. You're in a difficult place, a dangerous place. Bruce Waltke, who's one of the leading commentators on the book of Proverbs, spent his whole life studying this book, says this. Parents who brutalize their children cannot hide behind the rod doctrine of Proverbs. And so if you're out of control when you discipline, or if your spouse says you're out of control when you discipline, take this admonishment seriously. F find help. For the sake of your children, for the sake of your soul, seek out a godly mentor to help you. Because discipline is so easily abused, because our society shuns it, I think a lot of people have just shied away from it altogether. But that's just as dangerous. If we stop disciplining our children, we stop loving them. The rod's in the hand of a, a tender, compassionate parent is actually a powerful tool. Discipline must be loving, it must be consistent, but here's the key, it has to be uncomfortable. At some level, the discipline has to be uncomfortable. Hebrews 12 says this, for at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If the training is not painful, it's not training. Proverbs 29 says it more provocatively. Verse 19, you can't discipline your kids by words alone. You can't talk the folly out of a kid. This would be like trying to weed your garden by talking to the weeds, pulling up a bench at the edge of your garden and going, all right, weed, stop right there. Stop right now. Stop growing. I want you to get out of there. That, it won't work. It won't listen. You can't weed your garden through words alone. Discipline's uncomfortable. And, and parents will understand that. Derek Kidner says this, and this is a wonderful quote. The hard way to wisdom is better than the soft way to death. So if you love your kids, think of creative, compelling ways to train their hearts. As we close this section, let me, let me talk to the kids real quick. Kids, I know that you're in here, maybe some of you are not uh, used to being in here. If you're coloring on a connection card or putting the spring back into your pen right now, I want you to pay attention to me. I want all the kids to look at me real quick. You live in a world that has put a tremendous amount of pressure on you. Tremendous amount of pressure. Everyone expects you to be the next LeBron James or Alex Morgan or scholar athlete or whatever it is. I read an article on ESPN recently that is just, talks about the, the crushing weight we put on little kids for basketball. And it's just crushing children. There is so much pressure on you. The Bible keeps it very simple for you. 
Paul will summarize all of the, of the Proverbs teaching into a single line, honor your mother and father. Honor your mom and dad. Listen to them, o- o- obey them. When, when they speak, listen. They're not perfect, but they do deserve your honor. Pay attention to your mom and dad. Be kind in your response to them. If you can submit to their loving authority in your life, you will learn how to honor God's authority in your life. Before we close, let me say a brief word to the people that have already raised their families, the grandparents. The proverb actually has some wonderful words to speak to the grandparents. You play a crucial role in your family's life and and in our church's life. Listen to these statements. Proverbs 17, six, grandchildren are the crown of the age. Proverbs 16, 31, gray hair is is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Proverbs 20, the glory of young man is their strength, but the splendor of old man, of old men is their gray hair. I apologize pointing out the color of your hair. You'd rather me not. The Bible did it, so we'll talk there. So the Proverbs are clear. Listen to this. When you combine age and experience and many, many, many years of fearing the Lord, you get a kind of wisdom that is ripe, that is sweet, that you can't get any other way. And that wisdom is a gift to your family. It's a gift to your church. So whether God has blessed you with grandchildren or not, you have an important role to play in the life of this family, in this church. I thought about this last week through glory days. We could not do glory days if it were not for the strength of our young counselors, our young men and women that are in the youth group that led around the kids. And in a church like this with a lot of activity, a lot of energy, we, we tend to glorify the strength of young people. But the Bible is clear that we are helpless without the wisdom and the strength of our grandparents. If you feared God for a long time, your church is hungry for your presence and wisdom. I, I have so much more I could say, but let me close. Let's take a step out of the house and, and just take a walk around the proverbial family. This is what I've described so far, what the Proverbs have described. The family in the Proverbs consists of this. You've got a husband and wife who are deeply, passionately in love with one another. There's a fireplace, kind of they're sitting there, they're playing Scrabble. They're reading Bible verses to one another. They're giving compliments to one another. The kids are in bed. They put the kids down at 6.30, tuck the kids in. The, the sweet child didn't get up out of the bed a single time. And it's been in there, it'll get it's 16 hours of sleep. <laughs> Grandparents just drop by to drop off some cookies, to pray with you. Let me ask you a question. Who lives like that? I, I'll tell you this. Nobody in this room lives like that. You know why? Because if you live like that, you would not be here this morning. We have not come here to pat ourselves on the back and say, Christians, we got it all together because the Bible tells us how to do the perfect family. We can do this. That's not why we're here. We are in this room because we are failures, because we messed up. That's why we've gathered in this room, not because we have perfect families. I imagine this message was extremely difficult for a lot of you to bear because you're single and you thought, surely by this point in my life, I would have that family. And it hadn't happened yet. Maybe you're divorced and you're just trying to drown out this noise and you say, I don't wanna hear it. Maybe your marriage is not in the place it should be. 
This has just been a painful reminder. Maybe you said some stuff to your spouse, even last night, even on the way to church that you swore you'd never say. What kind of a jerk am I? Maybe that's how you felt walking into this room. Maybe you have images in your head of the way that you have disciplined your child. Maybe even last week, you feel so ashamed. Maybe you have a wayward son or daughter and you look at the Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go and even when he's old, he won't depart from it. Where's that? You just grieve because you don't have this family. How can we make sense of the Proverbs teaching on family? Proverbs will show us an ideal family. They don't tell us how to get there. This will show us the picture where we need to be. It won't tell us how to get there. And if you need proof, just remember who wrote this. Solomon had divine wisdom from God and he couldn't get it right. He tried 700 times and he couldn't get it right. His son Rehoboam, talk about a wayward child, completely shut his ear to the advice of the elders in his life and fractured the kingdom of God. Talk about a wayward child. Solomon can't get it. There's no hope for us. We can't live up to these standards. But church, we do have hope. And here's why. Because the Bible ultimately is not a book of good advice. We don't come in here and read good advice and just get beat up and walk home with our heads hung. No, the Bible is a book of good news. We couldn't do it, but we do know one that did. His name is Jesus. And that's why we have gathered in this room. Jesus lived the perfect life. He was the perfect child. If you read in Luke chapter two, at the end of that chapter, it says that Jesus grew in what? in favor with men and with God. You know what Luke is doing there? He's showing that Jesus fulfilled the Proverbs. Look at Proverbs chapter three, verses three and four. We preached this a couple of weeks ago. If you hold steadfast love, you will grow in favor of God and of man. Jesus fulfilled every line in the book of the Proverbs. He was the perfect son. He listened to his father. And then he gave that perfect life as the perfect sacrifice for this broken room of sinners to save us. And in doing so, he became the perfect groom to the bride, which is his church. Jesus is perfect. And so if we want godly families, and yes, we do, because God created us with this desire, we will need more than just good advice. We don't have the ability to build a godly family, but we serve a God that is powerful and it can transform us and it can change us and meet us in our brokenness and give us something new. We serve a God that specializes in resurrection. When all hope is dead, he brings forth something new. And so if your family or your situation or your whatever has brought you to your knees, don't despair. If this message has discouraged you, don't lose hope because God does his best work when all hope is lost, when all of your dreams have died, when your future is uncertain, when every plan has failed, 
and you're drowning in sorrow again and in your loneliness again and you can't wait another week, you can't get through, that is where God does his best work. The darkness of Saturday leads to a resurrection on Sunday morning. Our God is powerful enough to raise Jesus out of the grave and he is powerful enough to raise something new and beautiful out of the ash heap of the mess that you made. God can bring forth a resurrection unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit.